Welcome to this one-off podcast from the education team at the BMJ. Today we're going to look back at 2019 and bring you some of the highlights from the education pages of the journal. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ, and I'm joined by... Hi, I'm Navjoit Lada. I'm the head of education at the BMJ, and I am a locum GP doing one day a week in London. Hi, I'm Anita Jain. I'm also a clinical editor with the BMJ, and I practice as a family physician in India. And I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor, and I see patients in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and I work part-time as a clinical editor with the education team. And together, we're the excitable children racing down the stairs to unwrap our presents on Christmas Day morning from the Christmas tree that is the nine pages of education that you get in the BMJ every week. So we're going to take it in turns to go around and just introduce our favourite uh, BMJ article from the education section of the year. Um, and these are like little presents we're going to be unwrapping uh, as we go along. So who, who would like to unwrap their present first? I can go first. Also, it's my birthday on Christmas Day, so I feel like I oh. should get kind of some kind of birthday, birthday birthday rights or um, some privileges. <laughs> so my um, article, I think it's been a really great year, actually, for um, education um, in the journal. There's been a really wide variety of articles and lots of kind of interesting stuff that has really influenced my own practice. But the one article I picked out was one that has really made me think about um, things in a different light. So rather than being a kind of clinical article, it was more about um, my relationships with people and um, how sort of power dynamics with um, patients and carers play out. So in um, October, we published an article um, in our What Your Patient Is Thinking series, which explores um, exactly that. So insights into how patients and carers experience care and what lessons there are for clinicians reading the articles. And we this one there was one that we published in October called Please Don't Call Me Mum. And in this article, the author Stephanie Nimmo uh, talks about her experiences of being in hospital with her fourth child who was born with a rare genetic condition and um, she describes being followed um, down a hospital corridor by a doctor waving some notes at her and calling after her saying mum mum and um, she talks about how she found found that really sort of disempowering and she turns to him and says I'm not your mother there are four people in the world who are entitled to call me mum and you are not one of them and she goes on to talk about how you know, just referring to her as mum doesn't recognise her as a sort of person in her own right and also sort of diminishes her role in her daughter's care um, as, you know, being an expert with experience of um, her daughter's trajectory and, and experiences and what she can bring to the table. And so there was a real lesson there about, you know, not assuming that people want to be referred to in a particular way and considering how you might um, include people in a way that makes them feel an equal part of the conversation and to feel part of the team and definitely in um, when I practice I very often will turn to um, the carer with the child yeah. and say you know how does that sound mum or yeah. mum is there anything you want to add or dad you know what do you think uh and some of yeah. the time I will check that they are actually the parents before they come in, but actually not always. So it raised all these kind of points of reflection for me about, you know, um, yeah, just those assumptions we make and um, whether that's actually 
going down well with people. Yeah, and we just we just use these terms without really thinking very much, do we? And they they can that can be the one thing the person, the patient, or the carer takes away from the consultation. Um, is that something you see yourself, Jenny, in, in your practice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll never forget being in residency training in the Bronx and. Um, finding it so strange um, being on the pediatric service, all of our senior residents set this clear example of calling um, patients' parents mommy. And it got really (laughs) frustrating to most people involved. Like they'd be giving instructions on how to take a medicine and they'd say, okay, mommy, this is what you need Mm. to do. And Mm. from those of us who I think were a little bit more concerned with identity politics, kind of ugh, kind of <laughs> feeling our stomachs drop. But at the same time, it can be hard to um, find a comfortable way to kind of ask about the identities mm, of the people mm. in the room. Um, I had a patient recently, just a, um, a baby's first well-child visit, and two women walked into the room. Mm. And um, I wanted to be very careful of not making assumptions mm. about who they were and it turns out you know they're their partners and both moms for the for the baby um and i think i said something awkward like so who is everybody in the room <laughs> but it can Sounds be right. but it can be i think a little challenging yeah. to ask about what the relationship is yeah. to the patient mm. of people who accompany them into the room yeah for sure i would say also that in a typical 10 minute consultation in general practice i yeah, I think you want to make sure that you're who that you know who is in the room and who you're addressing. But actually, to, do you have time to kind of get into the, well, how would you like to be referred and yeah. and you know all of that? I, yeah. I just don't I think know when how. I'm at my best, my least tired and like least rushed, then yeah. then that, I can aspire to that. But, yeah. but maybe um, in reality, it's very hard to to do that. Is this an issue for, in your practice, yeah, I was Anita? Just, I was just thinking that uh, it is very common for us to address uh, someone else with a relation. So we would just call them as brother or sister and not mm. as much, you know, mom of the child. Mm. Uh, so it's very common for us to just address them with a relation or just call them brother or sister. Uh, By but their I relation to you, do you mean? Yeah, so it's very com- oh. yeah, so it's very common for us to just call anybody brother, you know, okay. or sister, what do you, you know, in, in Hindi, but yeah. Yeah, wow. Um, but I think uh, where I would, uh, you know, relate to this issue is more when I deal with uh, older patients. So I might inadvertently address them as someone senior to me. And uh, I think it just made me think that maybe I need to ask them, is it okay if I call mm-hmm you an uncle or mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yes interesting and has had a lot of reaction on, online and and um in rapid responses yeah it's been really it's been really um widely accessed and i think there's been a lot of discussion about it on social media as well and i think a lot of um from what i can see parents echoing those comments too <laughs> thanks enough joy uh, anita what article do you want to to discuss Yes, I would like to talk about uh, this article which we published in our Uncertainties uh, series. And the series uh, addresses areas of uh, 
uh, which are of questionable uh, practice or areas of uncertainty in clinical practice essentially uh, and this article uh, talks about uh, which emollients are effective for eczema in children um, and i i was particularly interested in this because i i have been doing a lot of work in child health but also because i felt that it was an article that had uh, a very was relevant to a wide range of people so including doctors who struggle with which which uh, emollient to prescribe uh, but also to parents and uh, children uh, who have to deal with uh, questions on a long term basis about which which emollient suits mm. them uh, and i thought this article did uh, did an excellent job uh, by uh, it was very practical uh, and there are it actually gives directives um, on uh, how to prescribe emollients uh, explaining how it is to be used to the carers uh, and also following up uh, uh, following up with patients and how to help them choose the most appropriate emollient for them uh, and i think one of the highlights was also the infographic that accompanies the article uh, it is titled as a sticky decision uh, and uh, goes into the advantages and disadvantages of using any one type of emollient and again how to use uh, them or how to make a decision uh, so i thought i thought it uh, it was a very practical mm. article and covered an area that that is a challenge in practice yeah. what what were the main practical so take home messages from it I think one of the things was uh, because it's in the uncertainty series uh, there was clearly uh, limited evidence on whether one type of emollient is better mm. than another uh, and uh, one of the main learnings was that in practice you may actually have to ask a patient to try one type uh, for a certain period of time and if it doesn't work for them then maybe opt for another emollient mm. and there are also details on choosing an emollient based on the weather at a particular time based on uh, which which sort of container it might come in and you know mm. what works best for the mm. patient yeah it's definitely a common issue isn't it I've, i very difficult to know sometimes what 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 was going to be most effective or even most tolerable i suppose in, in for that mm. child and the parents um there's all the sort of pharma influence because there isn't mm. much data that, that you know if 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 you do happen to speak to somebody in, from the industry about it they'll obviously give you their spiel about how amazing their formula is but this article presumably is saying that there isn't any well isn't any evidence or what evidence there is, is isn't great yeah so one one challenge is that uh, it does talk about the wide range of formulations that are available in the market so and with a range of ingredients so there are a lot of things that these emollients may uh, have uh, but there is actually very little evidence on whether one one uh, constituent mm. of an emollient is is particularly effective mm. so i think there's very little evidence whether any particular constituent is effective uh, but the article does focus on choosing between the four types so between a lotion mm. a gel and ointment and a cream yeah, yeah. and jenny is this something in i know you see a lot of children in your practice in cambodia you were telling me yeah kind of, how would you have that discussion <clears throat> with the parents well i was actually going to say that yeah. tom i think it's important to note the kind of um preferences of families I slather both of my kids with this really thick petroleum-based ointment that totally ruins their clothes. So their pajamas are 
greasy and, <laughs> and and kind of like heavy, even though they're not wet, just with this really thick ointment. And it works, but it's also really hard to find. So mm. it does link to um, availability, mm. and that's that goes straight yeah. up back to um, the farm the in, the influence of the pharmaceutical industry in terms of supply chains. Mm. And was we we discussed in one of our meetings this year about. The, the the flammability of, of emollients mm-hmm. and that yeah. we should I think somebody people suggesting that we should be having a conversation with every parent that these are flammable which <laughs> is a terrifying thing to hear as a parent isn't it? well and after that conversation I was like do I need to throw away all of my kids pajamas yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because they're coated in this highly flammable yeah. substance you could have a good bonfire I guess uh, <laughs> 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 enough Joe you haven't said anything on this so do you want to <laughs> Else to say. Okay. All I was thinking while we were talking um, is that I think I have this kind of small, quite small list of emollients that I know and yeah. that I'm familiar with the prescribing. So when I'm trying to, you know, have these conversations about um, people's preferences, I think I can do like the broad categories yeah. of like um, emollient versus cream versus yeah. gel. Um, but uh, sometimes I feel like I don't always know within those categories, the kind of full range of sure. options. And there's always my, you know, uh, in the UK, we get these prescribing prompts that come up anyway that tell you what to prescribe within a particular category. So although we want to kind of promote shared decision-making, sure. there's often kind of constraints yeah, to that. Yeah. Um, not least, probably, yeah. I don't think I ought to say this. I was gonna say, not least my knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, not least. My <laughs> uh, uh, certainly in... In my area, uh, guys at St. Thomas's, they they give. If you go to a dermatologist there, they will give out these little starter packs mm. where they give sort of I don't know fifty mils of a range of different emollients for the parents to go and try them out on on their children. Mm. And, and the the instruction is go and sort of tell your GP which which is the emollient that is right for you. Right. And I think that's one of their sayings, isn't it? Like the the right emollient is the one that the parent will use or yeah. the patient will use. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do sometimes try to adapt that to my own practice a bit and say you know if, if you're happy to go and buy those little tubes of a few different types you know why don't you do that and then let me know what, yeah. what seems to work best yeah and that's exactly what the article uh, recommends as well so with using these starter packs i'd forgotten the word but yeah oh great oh i haven't even read the article <laughs> hey, hey, you haven't read it <laughs> you will now <laughs> so thank, thanks anita thank you uh jenny what, what article have you brought for us Yes, my turn to unwrap a present. So I wanted to talk about um, uh, one of the state-of-the-art reviews that we published in July of this year on the pathophysiology and clinical implications of preeclampsia. So the the state-of-the-art review series is one that really tries to capture um, a a large evidence base um, and kind of summarize where that evidence is also highlighting new new areas of future research um and the thing that struck me about this article um well so many things but really the change in the way that we think about um the pathophysiology of preeclampsia so whereas in the past it had been theorized to be um the product of a too strong immune reaction from the maternal um immune system as the the fetus or the pregnancy was starting to implant in the uterus now there's a greater understanding of the extremely intricate kind of 
cell-to-cell signaling that goes on between um, the progenitor cells in the placenta of the of the conceptus and then the um, the uterine lining of the of the mom, and um, a lot of that deals with kind of remodeling the spiral articles and links it to on to kind of future inflammatory states that could impact the health of the mom. Mm-hmm. So certainly we <clears throat> know about the connection between high blood pressure and preeclampsia because that is often one of the presenting signs, but even a broader kind of um, chronic inflammatory state. Um, and I, one thing that um, came out of the article for me was that the diagnostic criteria that we've kind of used for so long and which have been implemented in standard prenatal care practice is, you know, um, screening of blood pressure at every visit and um, an outgoing kind of practice of doing a urine sample at every visit as well. So that used to be a spot check for urine, uh, for protein in the urine, excuse me. And now I think our understanding has... um, changed a lot so there can you can have preeclampsia without elevated blood pressure um, and I think we're still trying to understand the full um, the full pre- kind of spectrum of presentations of preeclampsia for other organ systems so whether that's um, impacts on the liver the kidney the neurologic system with um, severe headache or also just hematologic involvement and then of course the utero placental blood flow so dopplers are gonna doppler ultrasounds of uterine blood flow will play a greater role um but there's been a lot of kind of media attention this year too to our poor understanding of the placenta as an organ and a lot of articles kind of highlighting that it's one of the areas where our research has not gone so far or gone as far as in other areas. And um, there was a book by this woman, Angela Garbus, who wrote a book uh, called Like a Mother. And one of the press pieces around the time of its publication was kind of a viral article that she wrote explaining all the amazing physiologic things that a woman's body does over the course of pregnancy and then breastfeeding. Um, it opened the this this state of the art review opens questions around how we should be screening for preeclampsia and then like I think is the precursor to what I hope we'll see more in the future kind of clear um, guidelines around mm. diagnosis. And so it's thinking of that, that from the patients we might see, I suppose, as GPs, as we're all mm-hmm. GPs, I suppose, talking at the moment, is is that it's questioning then the, the urine dip, which mm-hmm. is kind of like the most comforting part of that consultation. It's like, you know, do the urine and it's all <laughs> fine. But is that, is that going out already or is that on its way based on this, uh, so, this, this evidence? Yeah, so I think practice varies widely, and I'm curious to hear um, your experience about this as well, Anita, but certainly when I was finishing up my residency, um, we were already not doing a regular right. urine dip, and there was so much more emphasis on blood pressure mm. measurement and monitoring and a recognition that other symptoms could be the only kind of presentation of preeclampsia but it, it it presents a real challenge if you're the if you're the first person to see a patient and they're not 
kind of feeling well, but in a vague way, well, do we need to refer them for, mm-hmm. you know, screening for preeclampsia and what would that look like? But Anita, I don't know what's your experience been with that. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting article and uh, some of the issues that you've uh, highlighted uh, from this paper. Um, and I, I'm aware that uh, in India, definitely, but in most of South Asia, there is this strong focus on uh, preventing maternal deaths. So that is sort of on the national health priority agenda in most of the South Asian countries. Uh, and preeclampsia is a major contributor to uh, the maternal deaths that still occur um, in the region. And I, know th- I think it's a part of the sustainable development goals to, to actually reduce maternal deaths uh, to nil. Um, and uh, I know back home we have uh, we have a very uh, stringent uh, process. So if there is any single maternal death, it's almost like a legal proceeding that happens on mm. the unit uh, to identify the causes and uh, uh, what went wrong and so on. So, uh, so I think the articles are very relevant uh, and also to think about uh, you know what are the screening or diagnostic strategies that that can be employed at at a very wide uh, scale. Mm. Um, and so routine, uh, routinely doing urine tests and blood pressure are, are part of the antenatal health checkup every every few months. Uh, but you still uh, find women who are not even getting the basic antenatal uh, checkups done. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they come to you at a very severe stage of disease when, when you're, you know, essentially just trying to protect the health of the mother and... Uh, so yeah, certainly seen a few uh, such women, and uh, and I totally agree. It's like a very important issue, uh, I think, across uh, the globe uh, to be covered. Yeah. So I guess that raises that question of: Is it the the tests that we'd like to do in in ordinary practice? You know, when you begin to question those and look in detail at the the, the basis for those, it can be um, a little bit surprising, can't mm. it? I think particularly in antenatal care as well, where just because of the way care is set up in the mm. UK, I think as a GP, there is that worry that you miss out on these kind of developments that are happening. And and yeah. um, because when, uh, as GPs aren't so involved, you know, you have your um, two, maybe three or more um, antenatal visits, but you're not sort of seeing a woman throughout her pregnancy mm. or seeing women consistently. Um, so I guess we're more reliant on things like nice guidelines here in the UK. Well, thank you, Jenny. Uh, well, is it your turn? To it's my turn now. Yes, and finally um, you get to open your present. <laughs> I get to my present. I'm very excited. <laughs> so mine is an article, a ten-minute consultation, which are the articles in the BMJ aimed mainly at GPs. What you might do in a ten-minute appointment with a patient, and there is this ongoing question and discussion we have internally here about the the whether it should be called a 15 minute consultation a 20 minute <laughs> consultation or a <laughs> yeah it's or 10 whatever. minutes realistic it's te- it's to cover minutes. the things that yeah. we need to cover yeah. so that is an ongoing discussion which um i think we'd be interested to hear people's views on actually wouldn't mm, we? Um, we really would but this was about um that situation where you you might do a hba1c uh test in a patient you know screening for diabetes uh and you actually get a borderline result and I don't know if this uh, rings true for you, but there's that kind of uncertainty about what do I do with this now? And uh, I guess that's how much of a discussion you need to have the patient and what really it means for their risk and their health. Uh, in this article, uh, the, the authors, Eleanor Barry and Samuel Finnegan, their main sort of take-home message, I think, from this is to, to use the Q-diabetes risk calculator um, because the risk can vary massively between one patient and another in terms of how likely they are to develop diabetes. Um, 
And there was a, an article several years ago from Professor Yudkin, John Yudkin, um, where he described pre-diabetes as a risk factor for a risk factor. And I always bear that in mind when I'm, when I'm thinking about um, this. So I wanted to ask you a little quiz, actually. The Christmas quiz is the sort of... <laughs> is the theme so here's the first part of our Christmas quiz uh, a 55 year old white man attends uh, his blood pressure review his HbA1c is in the borderline range so that's between uh, 6% and 6.5% I think but in his case it's 44 millimoles per mole if you want to use the the one we're supposed to be using but nobody does uh, his BMI is 31 and his cholesterol is raised and um I'm just interested to hear what you think his his risk of developing diabetes is over the next 10 years. So is it, um, give, just give me a figure. 20%. 20%, Anita. I'll go with 10%. 10%? Well, based on the high quality behavior change counseling that you're going to give uh, right, him, okay. Tom, oh, right. I'm going to go with 10%, 10% as well. Exactly. That's a very good point, yeah. Uh, 30%. Oh, Okay, so gosh. next question. If you have the same age as a 55-year-old woman with uh, a white woman with a t- BMI of 23 and no other risk factors, but the same HbA1c, what would her 10-year risk of developing diabetes be? Let's go back to Jenny. So the other one was 30%. And now what do you think hers might be? Well, her BMI is lower. Yeah. But that... So she's kind of like, but she still could have central adiposity. I would true. guess maybe like, I would think it's a little lower. Okay. I would think like mm. 20 to 25 okay. maybe. Anita? Yeah, I would think a bit lower yeah. to 20, 15. 15. Have you not read the article? <laughs> <laughs> uh, three, uh, sorry, 4%. Oh, wow. Yes. Gosh. So, you know, the risk factors make a huge difference. And I think that, that that's the take home message that, You know, I think there's a huge difference between that and there's a huge difference in, I think, how you should talk to that patient about their risk and not just label them all with uh, pre-diabetes and send them off to to lose weight and exercise more. We should have had something in this on, you know, South Asian descent. I just wonder if their risk is much higher. I think those calculators So that's included. If you go to the Ah, the Q diabetes... Because these are white men or white women examples. I was going to say that. (laughs) They're social justice warriors. These people are both white. Oh, goodness. (laughs) So um, some more quiz questions. Some more Christmas quiz? Yeah, Christmas quiz. Love it. So which education article had the most rapid responses in 2019? I think I know the answer to this, maybe. Okay, go on then. Was it loop diuretics? No. E-cigarettes? No. Jenny's looking blank. Uh, it's the thyroid hormone treatment for subclinical oh, hypothyroidism. Oh. Next question. So you're all on zero. Uh, which which article led one Twitter user to call for all copies of the BMJ to be burnt? <laughs> any, any ideas? A specific article? Yep. No, all of our articles are great. Well, this is Twitter, so we don't need to take the, the person. Education article? Yes. That I that I was <laughs> was in. was this about cannabinoids? No, no, was it, it about, was the very I unlikely. Think I know. Was it the IT band? Yes, so iliotibial what? band syndrome. Uh, that that very contentious topic. <laughs> Highly polarizing. Um, Who would have yes. thought? Who would have thought? <laughs> um, it was about um, saying you, you, apparently you can't stretch the IT band because it's not a, a muscle. Burn the BMJ. <laughs> 
Uh, next question. Uh, so a live editing test for you all to, to test your editorial editing skills. So um, can you spot the four, at least four mistakes in the following? We, we didn't prepare, Tom, in any way. Okay. You've got uh, a bunch so, of like perfectionist type, type <laughs> yeah. people okay. in here this won't go down well <laughs> so uh, it is essential that the patient should be referred urgently to the diabetic nurse okay so buzz in for oh. yeah. passive yes the word essential yes yes they took both my points oh, right, okay. so, uh, I've got another go one on urgent is not defined yes and there's one more diabetes nurse is very local Close. Not globally applicable. The, the diabetic nurse, you know, we, we don't, oh, you don't have to refer to a nurse with diabetes. It could be any nurse <laughs> who, who knows about it. And the last question, what piece of medical equipment does micro-engraver Graham Short use to help him in his work? Any ideas? Go on, go on Jenny. Is it? What? I was going to say, well, you said he's a micro-engraver, yeah. so presumably some kind of artificial intelligence related right. to his visual system. No, no, something no. a bit more basic than that. Everyday Fail. medical object. Nope. Okay, it's a stethoscope. Mm. So he's, as a micro-engraver, he, he engraves very, very small objects, including um, pills, like tablets. And there's a quote from him. Um, I work in, in an unusual way, wearing a stethoscope and taking tablets to get my heart rate down to 20 to 25 beats per minute. What I'm trying to do, using very fine needles, is engrave between heartbeats. <gasps> wow. Yeah. That's incredible. That is amazing. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, finally, a, a use for a stethoscope. <laughs> <laughs> right, so that's the end of the quiz. Um, I think you all did terribly <laughs> uh, that's the end of the quiz and that's the end of the podcast uh, thank you for listening to this podcast from the education team of the BMJ uh, we'll be back soon with more free CPD and quizzes uh, subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from so don't miss out on those I'm Tom Nolan I'm Navjot Lada I'm Anita Jin and I'm Jenny Rasanathan bye, bye for now, now. <laughs> happy holidays <laughs> <laughs>